Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tiamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with two of the artists behind one of the most impactful, intense, and searing plays to hit Broadway in a very long time, Prima Facie. Now, you might have heard how I say that, and I've been going back and forth on how to pronounce this show, but because I have the playwright on the show, I figured it was important to ask her the correct way to pronounce it. Unfortunately, we didn't exactly get to a great answer. But nonetheless, on the episode today, I'm speaking with playwright Susie Miller and director Justin Martin, who originally collaborated on the show in the UK before it moved over to Broadway. In both iterations, it stars the great Emmy winner Jodie Comer and it is currently scheduled to play at the John Golden Theater through July 2nd. Interestingly enough, as we were getting ready to start the conversation, Susie and I were on the call first, and we were waiting for Justin, who was a little bit delayed because he was in France and having some internet issues. Uh, he eventually got on. But just less than an hour before our conversation, the announcement came out in Variety that Prima Facie would be turned into a movie and that it would star Cynthia Erivo. So as we were getting ready for our regular conversation, Susie and I talked a little bit about that and some other things. So you'll hear the conversation is a little disjointed at the beginning because what you're actually hearing at the start is just Susie and I chatting about it and then getting into the fact that the announcement had gone out about the film, which she had not previously been aware of. And then you'll hear a little bit of music as we welcome Justin into the call and get into the rest of the interview. We had to cut a little bit out because of all the technical stuff you do at the beginning of an interview. But nonetheless, it was a really incredibly insightful and wonderful conversation with both of these people. They are as lovely as they are talented. So with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Susie Miller and Justin Martin. Whereabouts are you based? Um, I'm actually in Florida. Uh, I live in oh, Florida, no. but I I work out of New York, so I'm actually coming up to New York this uh, this Friday. So I'm there every couple months, but live oh, where it's like yeah, live where it's much more much more uh, hospitably climate wise. So I can imagine you living like in the Australian climate, but close to New York. I'm yes. kind of envious. That's kind of perfect. Where yeah. are you at right now? Well, I'm actually in LA. Oh, okay. Which, um, yeah, yeah, which is, we'll get to that announcement. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about the movie announcement too, if that's oh, all right. Oh, right. Did that just come out to it, it? It did. It came out. It looks like about fifteen twenty minutes ago. So perfect timing. Oh my god. Okay. Well, there you go. I didn't even realize it had come out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Variety just broke it. So yeah, very exciting. No, I've just turned on my phone because I was on another Zoom before this, <laughs> and so I, was, I had it on airplane mode. And now I'm getting a million notifications of from course, people. Of course. <laughs> well, congratulations like, oh. nonetheless. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you very much. I mean, it's been a while coming, but we wanted to wait until the the, the play had really done its time and all the rest of it. So it's yeah. a different conversation as well, which is interesting. So yeah. very cool. I'm looking forward to that. I, I can hear all the, the, the pings in the background from your from your phone catching up. That was oh no, it's just coming at me from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so I'm just gonna turn that off so that I can actually I Go just wanted it. to I wanted to get to Justin really, so I'm just yeah, gonna quickly yeah. him. So maybe we should talk about the yeah. we're very keen to make an all female um and to have a very experienced director with Susanna White, who is very experienced and very collaborative and has been brilliant. But we also wanted to do something different with a um black actress to sure. actually further, further the conversation. I mean, what's been amazing about the whole process of making the play is it's, it feels like it doesn't belong to me anymore. It's had an impact that I never expected it to have. I mean, I was recently sent by a judge from the Old Bailey 
in London the direction to the jury on rape trials that she's redrafted to include language for play. Like she's actually got, you know, like some of the lines from the play are within the direction. It's astonishing to me. And as an ex-lawyer, I sort of think maybe in a lifetime of legal practice, I still might not have managed to have make something like that happen. So it's kind of yeah. a, like a wow moment in terms of choosing to be an artist rather than a lawyer <clears throat> and recognising that how incredible that you can affect change by writing a story with only one person acting it, you know. Yeah. So, so Jody has been phenomenal in terms of actually bringing this internationally to the world and her special way of doing it has just really ignited a kind of theatre conversation and a world conversation. But the film is the next step in terms of talking, adding race to that conversation, because as a white woman with a white actor, we can't talk about race in the same way as if I'm in conversation with an artist who is a black woman who can really speak with authenticity and can inform the 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 film with that extra conversation around sexual assault and rape and how it affects women and how it affects women of class is what I can write about. And now we bring in the race element as well. And recently I did a round table with V, who was formerly known as Eve Onsler, who wrote The Vaginas. Oh, yeah. And also she also we had around us at the Algonquin table, which was just like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Uh we were talking with a group of women from different backgrounds and a lot of people of color. And we were talking about how and they the first thing they said to me is, what about race? And I said, absolutely. And I hands down say to you that you add race to this mixture and there's a whole lot, there's a whole other level of discrimination and a whole other level of not hearing women's testimony. So it's been really interesting to write the screenplay with an attendance to that and in collaboration with Cynthia, who's the character who's playing the character in the film. So it's very different to the play in that regard. Yeah, and uh, the the release from Variety came out and said that you are doing the adaptation. And I always wonder with these things, how closely do you stick to that original text that you wrote for the stage? How much of that is adapted? I always think about those things when they're being done by the original playwright. But when you go from something that is a one-person show on stage... I, I mean, I guess yeah. I suppose you could do it as a one woman film if you wanted to, but that. Oh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely yeah, not. And I, I think what's great about being able to take the play being a one person play is that when I adapted it, I had to start from scratch and create mm. all of those characters in a way that gave them presence on screen, but also carry through some of that internal voice so that there is a kind of formal change to the script so that you do sometimes have access to what she's thinking because I think that women are constantly thinking, they're saying one thing and they're thinking something else sometimes as well in terms of countering the dominant narrative that they have to abide by in order to get ahead in the world. So there's a little bit of playfulness with that or sort of playing on that, uh, which we do in the play obviously, but because it's a one-woman play, it gave me the scope. It was basically like adapting a novel really, just Mm. like creating the whole story into you know, like into a film that was visual and had, and because it was a, we had the race contingent in it, you know, I rewrote a lot of the, lot of the film script as well, but it's been a very collaborative experience with participant and Bunya because both companies have worked a lot with sort of, sort of social justice and even just ideas about stories being able to change the world. And for me, it was just the most brilliant collaboration, really. So sometimes when those things, those collaborations go well, it does bear well for what the product will be, I hope. But it does feel kind of exciting. So we'll yeah, see. Absolutely. Was just- yes. <laughs> well, Susie, I, I have to start with perhaps the most important question. 
how do you pronounce the name of the play? Because as somebody who <laughs> took multiple years of Latin in high school, I've always thought it was prima facie. But since the show premiered in London, I've heard so many people say facey that I feel like I might have gotten self-conscious and I'm starting to doubt myself. <laughs> so how do you pronounce the name of the show? Well, you know, what's really interesting is, of course, Latin doesn't have any absolute, you know, like pronunciation. Sure. It's a dead language, I guess. But I, um, in Australia, it's pronounced prima facie, and in law courts, it's pronounced prima facie. So that's the sort of one I go with. However, if you're a proper Latin scholar, I think you probably are a bit right in terms of the Latin way of saying it. But I just know the general way of people saying it in court is prima facie. Okay. So I feel like even though I was might maybe wrong in this context, I still am able to at least maintain some level of rightness. So I appreciate you, you might, doing you that. You might be more right than all the lawyers is my point. <laughs> I highly doubt that. Highly doubt that. So based oh. off of my decades ago uh, Latin uh, education, I know like the general meaning of it is like at first sight or at first glance. But in a legal definition, what does yes. that term really convey? So what it means is on the face of it, you have a case that can be heard in court. So, for example, you have enough facts there in your statement and that back up your statement that on, on the first look of your statement and your fact scenario, there is a defect that basically you have, you could put your case to court and have someone answer to it. But that, you know, the problem is in sexual assault cases is we say that and then we take them to court. And then what happens is there's a 1.3% conviction rate. So it's a little bit of a kind of procedural thing. It's not actually on the face of it. They do definitely have a case. So what happens between then and the actual hearing outcome is that something goes wrong in that because we're not getting the sort of conviction rates that you do in other crimes that have prima facie cases. Is that too legal? <laughs> no, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was hoping for, because I think one of the things that has really captivated a, a lot of audiences, both in you know Australia, UK, the US, and now worldwide, is the fact that you have this legal background that you come to. We see a lot of plays and even movies and TV shows that are set in courtrooms. Uh, and of course, they all have advisors and legal experts that kind of help. But to have this come from a playwright who has been a working lawyer adds not only just some relevance and insight, but also kind of drills down. And I, and I really appreciated that when I when I saw the show, because it felt not just like somebody telling me a story. It felt like they were explaining the real world yeah. base off of a story, which I, I assume is was part of the reason why you went there. It's I know you've written many plays and some of them diving into legal topics before since you left uh, the bar. But how important was it to dramatize the real yeah. world aspects of this in a way that people could understand? Because when you get into some of that legal jargon, like you were saying, it can go over people's head. But when you see Jodie Comer do this performance, there is no way that you can't be impacted by the yeah. facts and emotion of what is is happening at this at the center of this story. Okay, so first of all, and this is a great question by the way, but first of all, I actually when I was working in law, I realized that we'd all been trained to think a certain way, which was well and good and gave us the sense that we could play close to the edge in criminal law and still be neutral as long as the system worked. But I was starting to notice more and more that we'd been a little bit brainwashed into assuming that the system worked without interrogating whether it really did or not. And so as a woman and a feminist, I also thought, gee, in some of these cases, I don't know, I'm feeling like it's a very kind of patriarchal system, which we all know, but, you know, they always go to great lengths to say that the judge is impartial, that the jury are coming at it and they're the best way of finding 
finding discovering the truth and you think well we're all we're, we've all been molded by the same community and that community is riddled with patriarchal ideas and also it's the sort of the law is a reflection of that but also comes from years and years and decades and centuries of like old white men deciding things from their perspective so <clears throat> I think what was what's interesting to me was being in the middle of that system and interrogating it from the outside and the inside and recognizing that even when I spoke to other lawyers they didn't quite see it the same way because they were still part of the the system that I'd grown up with and been taught. And so when I left it I could actually look back and say how am I going to show that that paradox within the system and I think you have to pull the veil back on why you think it's working when you're in it. And then how you come to the discovery that it's not. And, I mean, it doesn't always take being the victim of a massive crime to discover that. Sometimes it just takes you empathising with your clients and realising that actually they should have won that, so why didn't they? What's going on that this keeps happening? And I guess that's why I wrote the play in the way that I wrote it because I thought I just want people to see that these defence lawyers are doing it because they believe in something, but they've been taught to believe in something that might not be as objective as they think. In Justin, from your perspective, as you take – this script, which is structured in the way that Susie kind of just broke down, how do you how are you able to maintain that idea uh, from page to stage that you are kind of straddling the line of both telling this very personal, intimate story, but also conveying a larger truth that has far reaching ramifications beyond just what happens in this particular hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes, however long the show is? I'd be very lucky that a lot of the work that I've done in the past does the same sort of thing is is in conversation with the world beyond itself. And and Susie and I talk about this a lot together is how do we get theatre off the arts pages and into a conversation? And part of that is is the balance of entertainment um, with something that is bigger, uh, a bigger conversation. And I think what Prima Facie does in a way that's that's similar to the work that I've done before, but in a very different sphere, is it poses a big question at the centre of it. And then Susie's found a very entertaining way in which to um in which to talk about that particular issue. So it's not just a, a lecture about the law, it's something far more entertaining. Um and then for us it was just trying to find a physical language that could hold um I suppose all the aspects of the law so that they weren't just reported action uh but sort of fed into that there's a certain theatricality that inherently comes with being a barrister and it was trying to embrace that uh, in, in as many ways as possible i mean i might just pop in there matt and just yeah. say what was really interesting about the way that justin directed is that he kept talking about what is the world of the barrister what is the world they play in what are the rules of that world how do they have to be what's their persona in that world and what's their other persona? And uh, and sort of interrogated the script from a perspective of real theatricality so that people always say that the courtroom is theatrical, but in reality it's actually a lot of administration as well. So it was really interesting to watch Justin find the world that Jodie could play in and watch her ignite once he found that world with her because it was in him setting that scene and showing Jodie what the rules of that game were that she could actually sort of soar to the heights that she she soared to. And as a writer, you don't do that in the script. That, like it's there inherently, but you don't point it out to people. But just Justin and I had such a simpatico, he could see right through exactly what I was trying to do. And you just used the word game, and it's in the, the show itself, and it's something that I often think about when looking at the 
ridiculous state of American politics that it's all just become a game. But yeah. like you're talking about with the rules and the performance and the way you kind of have to delineate the different sides of your mind that was broken down incredibly well in the show and I'm, I'm sure only enhanced by Jody's performance but for for both of you and maybe you know we can start with Justin you know maybe looking into to Jody's aspect of that how do you communicate the different internal sides of this character of Tessa playing this game but then also allowing that to spin forward into the different sides of her life as we see her evolved tremendously both personally and emotionally over the course of this story yeah i mean it, it obviously it starts with with the script and susie had such an insight given both her background but also her craft as a playwright and so we a large portion of what our job was how to uh, enable jody to be in the moment and, and play the truth of the script obviously within the context of that we wanted to uh create a theatrical um i mean uh, susie uses a word which we did use a lot which was talking about what is the barrister's playground within the center of that and it always wanted to I, I always wanted it to be dynamic so it has a sense of their performance level but ultimately you're also she's showing the personal the very intimate on stage and so it needed to uh embrace that within sort of what are very large theaters um so yeah with Jodie the, the brilliance I think of the play is that you get moments which she is performing in front of uh the courtroom and then the next minute she's at home and she's in a very intimate setting with her her mother and her brothers and the I, I suppose the duality of holding that those two elements together throughout so you're always getting the personal and the professional or the sort of uh epic and the domestic uh was something that was in the script and then we just tried to amplify with the production. Susie, you mentioned when we were kind of getting started talking about this idea of internal voice and how it is very novelistic kind of the way in some of these ideas and emotions and thoughts are conveyed to the audience in this show. That is not something that we see a ton of in in theater even in one person shows especially uh, narrative one person shows when it's just, you know, storytelling, we see that a, a little bit more. But I I kind of racked my brain and couldn't think of that many examples of shows that communicated the internal life of a character in the way that this show does. Why did you kind of settle on this half narration, half, um, you know, acting uh, opposite, you know, characters we don't see. Why was that the proper way to tell this particular story and communicate what was going on inside this particular character? Because I think that as a barrister and as a woman, you don't like a female barrister doesn't belong in that world. It wasn't designed for them. So it's been adjusted. So, you know, you still wear the horsehair wig and, you know, it's, it's different when it's on sort of like it's different when you've got a hairstyle that you don't want to muck up. Um, it's also different if you've got, you know, like braids or something, you know, like, I mean, it's different to just a male head. <laughs> so that's just the first incident that the uniform doesn't fit. But also the space was not designed for women to be in. And certainly the way that the persona of a barrister was not designed to, you know, you have to have a certain low voice and you have to speak in a very authoritative manner. And women aren't brought up to speak like that. But once you get into those rooms of power, you then have to, be both yourself on some level, but also your barrister self. 
And then at the same time, you are in the courtroom recognizing all the different dynamics that are going on there. So you know that your client is a bit worried that they've got kind of a young looking female barrister and is she just going to be a pushover? And and then the other side is thinking, oh, maybe she's not very bright because she's flicking through papers. And so you use whatever you've got to your advantage to undermine what they're what they're sort of they're, I guess what they're thinking they're going to do in the in the court. So it is a bit of a game in that way. But I feel like women are operating on about, first of all, they're really bright, the women that are in the courtrooms, and they're operating on about 10 tracks at once. So they're following not just what's happening in court, but they're interrogating how they're doing it to make sure they're doing it in a way that actually is convincing. They're interrogating how they sort of stand and how they absolutely present themselves. They're figuring out what kind of a- attitude the judge has and adjusting according to that. They're making sure they're figuring out whether the, you know, like, the witnesses are someone that are underestimating them or not. So, they're, and they're also, you know, like saying, "Oh, what is the dynamic in the room?" More so than than men probably are, because there's more dynamics that affect women in that room. So, I wanted to make it clear that you don't just have the narrative that's happening in court; you have the three other narratives that are going on in your head at once. Like, what is the client thinking? What is the witness thinking? What is the prosecutor thinking? What you know? How am I presenting? What if I pause here? Is that going to be to good effect or bad effect? So, it's not just what you're saying. And it's not just subtext. There's about five other things that are going on at any one time at the same time. And I wanted to point out that also there's a part of you that is playing the game. So you're actually pacing yourself to do the reveal at the right time. (laughs) So, but yet make it look like it was a very natural time to reveal something. So, you know, to do all that at once it's all happening in your head. So I wanted to actually put that out there and and show Jodie. And Jodie does it so brilliantly because she's got that wonderful way and her and Justin worked terrifically to mould this way that she it wasn't an aside to the audience so much as her verbally acknowledging what she's thinking and no one else in the room hears it. So it was so I guess it was a formal thing that I just really enjoyed playing with. But also it allowed me to have a feminist scope on something, to be in a, in that world that's very masculinely defined, but actually have her own recognition and her own cynicism around how she has to play the game. For me, it's very, um, I, I think it's a sort of genius way in because it it makes the perspective of the play singular in that I'm getting her perspective totally and that I do believe she's telling the truth because um, there's no sort of um, alternate reality in which somebody else is giving a perspective, um, which I think is really important for that story. But also not seeing the other characters means that they come alive in my own brain. So I've got my own version of who Julian is, and I've got my own version of who some of the the um, the women that she, that she works with uh, in her chambers, and that has a real power to me because my imagination is stimulated. And I think theatre, the genius of theatre is its ability to stimulate imagination, or ultimately it's an oral medium, and it stimulates imagination in a very particular way. And and I hope that everyone has their own version of particularly so, who someone like Julian. We all know what that sort of person is in our own mind and in our own lives, and I think that has a great power to it. Kind of going on a, a slightly different path. And again, I don't want to spoil anything. So if you don't want to get into these details, I totally understand. But just now, I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of water in this show, because one of the first things that really struck me at the very beginning was something that I thought I would screw up if I ever tried it is Jody pouring a glass of water. And then obviously we see water become a bigger piece of this throughout uh, the show as it continues. But from your perspective, what does that mean? And, and perhaps it was in the script, Susie, from you as well. But what is the importance of of those acts and those instances where water kind of becomes a central part of what we are seeing on stage? 
So uh, we, when I when I sort of first uh, read the script, the the thing Susie gave this amazing stage direction at the centre of it, which was that there's a pause and a, a moment. Really, I suppose it's a moment for the audience to take a breath post uh, what happens just before the interval, which is essentially a version of the assault. And uh, I was trying to figure out what that was. And I was so uh, moved by the idea of what happens early on in the second half where she talks about um, the having a shower and how she, which is such an instinctual thing to do, mm-hmm. is you know, you, something happens to you, you want, you want to take a shower, and then realizing that, that that act might be a mistake. And there was something about that pause in which, which it, uh, could, could be done in many different ways. Susie's very um, brilliantly leaves it open. I mean, she took, she, ask the question really of us as uh, theatre makers and directors and the like, designers of, of, of how to achieve what she wants in that moment. And it just struck me that the the centre of it needed to be built around this idea of rain and cleansing and, and trying to wash the stage away, even though you can't wash certain things away, which is sort of connects with the shower. And so the design of the whole show was built around this transformational moment where it rains. And um, I suppose it was that. And also at the moment of her lower, she goes outside. And uh, for me, in, you know, living in London, rain is obviously a huge part of our lives. And it just felt like something that could push her into a moment of doing something that she knows, you know, she makes a choice at the end of the first half of the play, which is I'm going to take this to court, even though I am aware of the ramifications of doing that and what's up what I'm up against and so that that's really where the conversation of water started the beginning I suppose it fed back really we spent a lot of time in court rooms uh Miriam and I and then Susie and I and Jodie and I um in all sorts of combinations and what I was looking for was really recognizable moments which transcend the courtroom and you know everywhere you go there's a there's a glass of water and uh and then it was about how to mess with those things so i mean the 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 microphones in the opening are all synonymous with courtrooms uh every every aspect of that set was trying to take pieces from our experience and put them on stage and then you know and then it was just going how can we do things that are audacious which is the sort of ridiculousness of what she does with that suddenly that water becomes a, a glass of champagne and then she throws it over her shoulder and that, and that feels naughty and audacious. And that sort of fed into the language of theatricality in which the show can be naughty and audacious because that character is playing games and is able to um, be in control of that room, particularly in the first half of the play. Yeah, it's it, the whole kind of through line of that is is really striking. And I love you breaking it down because I, I, I didn't even connect it with the shower aspect. But that's uh, that really is brilliant and adds a lot more. Uh, depth to that. Susie, as we were getting started, you mentioned you did a roundtable with V, formerly known as as Eve Ensler, and she is known primarily as the playwright behind the Vagina Monologues, and your main character, Tessa's last name is Ensler. I'm going to yeah. go out on a limb and say that's not a coincidence, um, but, but, but where... Why was that an important connection? Was it just because of the one-woman show aspect of it, or was there something a little bit deeper than that? It was something much deeper than that. I actually met Eve Onsler, as she was called at the time, now V, in 2010 in London, and I heard her speak and then had sort of a drink with her afterwards. But she spoke about how when she did the vagina monologues, how she used the funds from that she earned from that 
and set up this city in the Congo called the City of Joy, which is actually a city that she established for wow. women that were the victims of sexual assault of, during wartime in the Congo because it was one of the methodologies that that was used to actually undermine communities was to rape and, you know, really destroy marriages and family so that the women were excluded from community and the whole communities broke down and were much more easy, much more easily in infiltrated and um, demoralized. So she set up this city of hope for these women, city of joy for these women, where they would come in and that she'd have doctors and psychologists and spiritual kind of guidance and and just community. It was just women and they sat around and they they had a whole kind of like physical kind of uh you know like attention so that in fact all of the sort of terrible kind of consequences were attended to. And then they were also sort of brought back to life in a way because they were so absolutely traumatised and so silenced by the by the rapes that um, they just had lost their joie de vie really. Um, and there's a documentary about it somewhere, but I also, when she told when she told this story and she told about her own childhood sexual assault, I just thought, this is a real, this is a woman who is a playwright who has created something that's beyond beyond theatre out of her play, and that was a really inspirational thing for me. So when I was writing the story, I just wanted to use her name. I didn't even think anyone would pick up on it necessarily, and I did send it to Eve at the time and said, oh, you know, I've used your name, your surname as a character's name as an homage to you. And she was like, oh, yeah, great, you know, that's nice. <laughs> but then she was like, oh, wow, <laughs> like now it's everywhere. Um, and, you know, she's, she was, she's very happy about it, which I'm pleased about because she's changed her name in the meantime. But, um, but she said, yeah, I feel like. It's a passing of the baton between women, which is a really lovely gesture on her part, and I'm very honoured that she would say something like that to me. But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it was about her and it was definitely about seeing a woman that had done something magnificent um, about sexual assault and wanting to just give a little secret nod to her within this text, really. But no one picked up on it in London, I might add. <laughs> really? We, I did. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah, but you're a genius. <laughs> of course you did. But I expected it to be, you know, everyone to notice. And and I thought, oh, it's just, you know, Justin noticed it. But not many, not many other people pointed it out to me. In fact, if anyone really. But then when it got to the when it got to the US, I have had people go, Oh, I'm thinking this might be. And of course, Eve was at the first preview, wasn't she, Justin? She was, or, yeah. Eve was at the first preview. And and I didn't recognize it because she's changed her hair color and she had a mask on and so forth. And she gave me a huge hug and said how much she loved the show, which was such a relief. I'm glad I didn't know she was there <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah, so, could have yeah. been a could have been a much different reaction if she told you she didn't like it and didn't appreciate yeah, you. It would have been awful, it? wouldn't yeah. it? I know, I know. I would have been panicking all the way through the first preview if I'd known she was there. So I'm glad I didn't know. Yeah. Well, I know one of the things, well, not the exact same, but I know that the show on Broadway is uh, supporting the school's consent project. And I don't know how much either of you are involved with that or if it's more, you know, just coming from this production standpoint. Uh, but that's an, another kind of nice connection to have with some of the the things that she did with with uh, the vagina monologues in the Congo. So it's a nice uh, continued through line between the two of those two shows as well. Yeah, well, that was James that produces initiative but justin i've been very involved with kate parker who runs the organization and it's been a joy to be part of hasn't it justin it has been i mean it's that we knew that the show asked a question and and an audience comes out wanting you know and they'll have their own answers but we also wanted to provide some avenues for answers um and and that was one of them i mean we've been so i mean susie we should talk more about this but we've been so shocked by the sort of and humbled by the response with within the legal community in terms of how I'm mean, again it's getting arts off the arts it's off the arts pages 
and uh, schools consent project is one way in which we've you know we've tried to offer an avenue to answer the question but also you know every judge in northern ireland now needs to watch this uh the film version of this in order to be as part of their training and so we these sort of different ways that we can answer the question so that judges are trained in different ways and juries are trained in different ways through watching the play um and Susie, you do want to say we, we had this very exciting bit of news today that actually the in london um the briefing to all juries has been changed um yeah, but up by the judge who saw the play she's she's the person who writes the briefing to the juries i think i might have mentioned it early in our conversation but that you know that briefing is quite a long briefing but she really refers to actually the language in the play doesn't she justin so we feel like our job here is you know, has had a much bigger effect than we assumed that it would. But also there's a group of young women barristers, quite a large group and not just young, I should say, but they um, have set up the TESSA project, which is based on the name of the character but stands for the Examination of Serious Sexual Assault Law, and they're actually drafting amendments to the legislation in the UK because it's a 20-year-old um, piece of legislation to actually account for how the onus can shift and how it you know they can actually even up the score a little bit when it comes to sexual assault before the law and I think it's just awareness raising and you know and sending messages out to young people about you know what consent is because it's profoundly been that consent is if a man believes there's consent then there's consent and I think you know for years it was only in the 90s that we decided that you know, if you were married to someone that you weren't just consenting to sex for the rest of your life whenever they wanted it. And I think that's quite profound to think that was in the 90s. It's not that long ago. So, um, you know, it's about just rejigging the law always to fit contemporary standards. And that comes, you know, with race, with class, with gender, with, you know, all sorts of different, with disability, with so many different ways that we stop seeing people in the context within which they are in yeah uh, it, it's unbelievable to see the show have such an impact uh, in so many different ways both legal and artistic uh, you both must be in incredibly proud and I, I will wrap up here uh, and let you both go because I'm sure you're both incredibly busy but uh, I did want to just talk a little bit about Jody's performance because I feel like people who have watched her on TV or in film, understood what an incredible talent she is, but I feel like watching this, and I, I think the term tour de force is probably a little cliche and overused at this point, but I don't know if I've ever seen a performance quite like this in terms of the not only rapid fire dialogue, but the rapid fire emotions and intellect that has to be communicated if in, a, you know, in a given minute, let alone in a given show. From your perspectives, both, and I'll, I want to ask both of you, but Justin, I'll start with you having, you know, worked with her so closely to craft this performance. What is it that she brings to this character in this show that allows her to just give a, a performance that, it, in my mind, because of, you know, the the fact that it was captured in, uh, in London, that I think is going to live on and it's going to be something that people watch for years and decades and generations to come? I hope so. I mean, she's a theatre animal at heart. And I, I think, you know, she she um, has said before that, you know, she'd been trying to break into theatre for a time and there was a sort of constant rebuff to her that she hadn't had training and therefore it was sort of not, uh, you know, it wouldn't work within the context of various shows. For us, we, you know, I watched the first series of Killing Eve at the beginning of lockdown and there was just an inherent theatricality within what she was doing and the choices that she was making, but they were utterly believable. And that sort of felt uh, like it would find a home in theatre. And so, you know, we just went, come on, let's just 
Jodie, let's just do this. And she was very sweet and said, can I audition? And we were like, no, let's just, we just want to make it with you. <laughs> um, but I do think she's, she's a theatrical animal. She's incredibly open. Um, I think in some ways what you don't, what Jodie doesn't do is fake it on a Wednesday when she's a bit tired, she gives you, you know, everything. And I think that is a real dedication to her art and to her performance. I know she absolutely adores this experience of the non-permanence of theatre and that idea that, you know, tomorrow I get another go. And so if things uh, didn't work as well as I'd hoped today, then I'll, I get another go tomorrow. And because of that, I think she's constantly exploring, constantly finding. She's just curious about the sort of the whole uh, performance of it and trying to figure it out every day. And she is figuring it out anew every day. And the joy for me as a director is, you know, we we are as we sort of figured out what the show was and with her at the center of it and what her performance was, was trying to find the vessel of the show that that would enable her to make it slightly different all the time so that she was really alive and exploring within the center of it. And I think what's happened in, on Broadway, I mean, it happened in London, but it's sort of expanded on Broadway is the, her confidence within the context of that. And she is just so in command of that performance. And it's such a joy to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was Justin was the first person to bring her to mind for the casting because I mean, I'd seen Killing Eve, but I thought she was a Russian actress. I didn't realize she was British. <laughs> um, but um, and you know, like his instincts were just so right on because she has the authenticity of being able to bring an oral landscape to that class discussion because she's got her British court accent and her home accent, which is her Scouse accent that we we sort of worked into the play. Mm -hmm. And I think for that reason, you hear the difference in her life as well. And that was like magnificent. But also I watched, you know, it was such a like a life-changing thing to watch this television film actor come into a room and do a one-person show under the incredible guidance of Justin, who basically gave her a theatre masterclass in a sort of six to seven weeks of rehearsals. And I watched it unfold in, you know, like someone bold and brave and courageous standing there on her own in rehearsals with all of us sort of helping mould, but Justin just leading the way into this incredible performance where she was prepared to absolutely go there and just be courageous and work so hard. I don't think I've any, seen any actor work so hard. And she was desperate to be involved in theatre. She loves theatre. And I think how great was it that we just got her at that one moment in her life when she hadn't done it before and she was brave and courageous enough to want to do it in, in a one-person show. So, I mean, she's an extraordinary talent, but she's also a really nice person. She's so, really nice. Person. Yeah, really. she's really fun as well. You know, all the stuff you see on stage, she carries it into her life. She can have a laugh. She can be serious. She can be vulnerable. But I'd just like to point out that there's a moment every night in the theatre that Jodie and um, Justin have absolutely nailed, and that is after a certain scene when, you know, when she's dating a boy and he's in her house, that she's having an experience that's familiar to all of us and everyone is laughing so heartily and just really like people are just have let loose. And then a second later, there is utter silence in the theatre. And every night I go in there because I know what's happening, you'd hope. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and I sit there listening to all that hearty laughter knowing that in about three minutes it's all going to be completely silent. And then I close my eyes and I cannot hear a single thing. You cannot hear a rustle. You can hear nothing. And I just think the power of theatre and the power of people assembling together in a theatre, shoulder to shoulder with strangers, and having that same emotional reaction 
in a public forum is just an astonishing experience for me as a playwright to witness. What an incredible impact that this show has had on so many people. And I'm so incredibly happy for both of you that it is continuing to do so in New York and and with American audiences as well as because even though this was obviously written about a a court in the UK, it is still very much unfortunately prevalent here in the States uh, as well. So I want to thank you both for not only sharing this story, but also sharing your time to talk about it with me. I, I really appreciate it. And I wish you nothing but the best, not only with uh, the rest of this run with the film and everything else that either you do together or or separate, but hopefully you guys continue <laughs> to work together in the future as well. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, he's he's never getting away. <laughs> we we work so well together. I love it, <laughs> Justin. <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks, mm. Matt. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us.